Typically, young men leave these gangs when they go to serve in the army or after the age of 18, 20. In any case, they start a family, find jobs and, and leave this sort of childhood stuff behind. But what happened in Russia was that at the beginning of the 1990s, young men stopped leaving these gangs. And this coincided with the development of capitalism. And I think this is, was a f- fascinating new page in the history of uh, Russian gangs and also a major feature of capitalist development in Russia. Кто вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, и при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome to the show Svetlana Stevenson to talk about street gangs, violence, and capitalism in Russia. Svetlana Stevenson is a reader in sociology at London Metropolitan University. Her research has involved studying informal and criminal social networks in Russia, as well as perceptions of social justice and human rights in a comparative context. She is the author of Gangs of Russia, From the Streets to the Corridors of Power, published by Cornell University Press in 2015. Here's Svetlana Stevenson. Why don't we start by having you talk about the origins of your interest in gangs in Russia and why you chose to focus on Kazan in particular? Yeah, well, my interest developed a long time ago, at the beginning of the 1990s, when I worked at the Russian Center for Public Opinion Research, which is now called Levada Center. We had a study of homelessness, and I was interviewing young homeless men on the streets of Moscow, and I realized that many of them shared one particular dream. They wanted to become members of bandit gangs, or gangs of the so-called Vore, of Zakonia, uh, thieves in law. So there were these criminal organizations which really attracted these uh, young men. And not so much because of the offer of criminal incomes, but because they saw them as places where they would find belonging, they would find protection, they would find fairness and justice. And they made attempts to join, which were quite interesting because they would send some money or food or tea to the penal colonies where members of these organizations were incarcerated. They they would visit bars and cafes where they hoped to meet with these individuals and so on. So I realized that there was this alternative form of social organization which seemed to be extremely important. And also, just by living in Moscow at the time and seeing groups of young people in sort of identical kind of gear, tracksuit bottom, bottoms and, and, you know, uh, leather jackets uh, and so on, you know, and, and fearing like uh, everybody else of violence and actually observing crime. I, I lived at the time in a very middle class area in Moscow, near the Moscow University, And there were two gang-related killings just outside my windows. So this this was the reality. You you really couldn't escape. So 
I wanted to investigate this form of social organization. And in the middle of 2000s, I met with my colleagues from Kazan, who had by then done some research in Kazan, in, in Bruda, Tatarstan, on these types of gangs. And we teamed up and conducted our research. So Kazan was a natural choice, first of all, because there were people there who have had an experience of studying this topic. They had some access, which was extremely important. You want to study this group, sort of hard-to-access group. And also, Kazan was a place which was renowned back in the Soviet days for its violent gangs. And then in the post-Soviet time, again became renowned for its violent and extremely powerful gangs. So one of the things I really like with your book is exactly what you just said about the, the gangs as a form of social organization. And one of the things I was struck by is that you, you really describe the social environment from which these gangs uh, emerge. And you, and you focus on the fact that they're young men, they're, the importance of the street, the importance of a peer group for, formation and masculinity. Talk a bit about how these combine to form gangs in the Russian context. Well, the gangs are essentially street social organizations. They ha can have different forms and they can be criminal or non-criminal. So they exist all over the world, not just in Russia. But Russian street organizations have, I think, some interesting features which are to do with the fact that Russia is a late modernizer and it has I think preserved the traditions of village culture, particularly in the working class milieu, which other countries perhaps have left behind. So traditions such as organized fights between young men from different areas, so called festive fights when young men meet up during various festivities and celebrations just to beat each other up. And this violence is highly ritualized. There are prohibitions on the use of weapons, there are specific rules of engagement, and so on. And you can find such forms of ritual battles even in Moscow, which is now a global city, but I did a little project there as well, where I found how, particularly in the peripheral areas of Moscow, young, young men still come together and fight in this kind of very organized and ritualized way. Typically, young men leave these gangs when they go to serve in the army or after the age of 18, 20. In any case, they start a family, find jobs, and, and leave this sort of childhood stuff behind. But... What happened in Russia was that at the beginning of the 1990s, young men stopped leaving these gangs. And this coincided with the development of capitalism. And I think this is, was a f fascinating new page in the history of uh, Russian gangs and also a major feature of capitalist development in Russia. That's why I, I decided to study this. The relationship between capitalism is definitely something I want to talk talk about in a bit. But let, let's start all by going back a bit and and have you describe what gangs were like in the late Soviet period in the seventies and eighties before the collapse of the system. Well, they were largely fighting territorial gangs, but the, some of them were in transition. They were in transition to criminal enterprises, and I link this to the crisis of the Soviet socialist project. The fact that 
starting from the late 1960s, inequalities started to emerge in a previously largely equal Soviet society. And these inequalities were particularly affecting working class young men who were often didn't have the social networks, they didn't have parents who, who could have secured places in good universities for them. And the party also started to change its education policies so that more and more working class young people go into vocational colleges or straight into factories rather than to the universities which they had the chance to, to do before. At the same time, new Entrepreneurial opportunities emerged with the emergence as well of the shadow economy in the Soviet Union when managers of Soviet companies started to, to channel some of the production, or some, or some of the produce into sort of underground networks of distribution. And these Soviet shadow entrepreneurs needed violent resource. They needed somebody to protect them. They needed somebody to help transport the goods and so on. And the street gangs of young people became quite useful. So in Kazan itself, a major gang emerged, the gang which was famous in the Soviet Union, called Tsyapliap, which started to provide these violent services to Soviet entrepreneurs. And then, as the Soviet Union collapsed, Tsyapliap and other similar gangs moved into the racket of protection, but now they, they began to protect new private companies, self-employed people, and so on. One of the things you do emphasize is that once the Soviet Union collapses and the system that it had, the, the social system, the economic, the state structures, caused a, quite a displacement of young people. I mean, you talk about this a bit in terms of women and men. And gangs filled this vacuum of this lack of social uh, networks. Uh, talk about how gangs transformed into alternative social networks in the 1990s. The late 1980s, becoming uh, beginning of the 1990s, were a time of the uh, collapse of uh, stable form of forms of social life. When the Soviet Union collapsed, and with it the, the system of welfare collapsed, and, and the, the, all the enterprise-based Soviet social networks with them were destroyed, the population, pe people started to look for new forms of so social protection and possibly new forms of careers. Now, the gang became one of such forms which offered young people who were associated with it protection, a kind of security, but also it uh, offered them an avenue of, uh, using the slang of the, uh, of the time, of rising, rising together. This was a, 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 you know, to rise together and uh, achieve a social mobility through this vehicle of illegal entrepreneurial activities. So from being peer groups or maybe fighting formations, gangs turned into acquisitive networks. And they, they were able to do this because they had systems of traditional authority. They had strong networks of personal trust. They had mastery of violence. And they also had the presumption of sovereign control over the turf where these young men were based. And where now new private businesses had started to be located. So what they didn't have 
but only at the start, with access to state networks. So, in their case, access to resources was established via territorial domination. They used extreme violence and intimidation and divided their neighborhoods and began to collect tribute from small businessmen, from self-employed persons who were working on their turf. Some of, of these gangs remained as separate territorial gangs, but others evolved into larger organized crime structures, so-called группировки, and they competed with other male associations, which also shared bonds of trust and mastery of violence. For example, groups of professional athletes, former Afghan veterans, networks of migrants. So there were all these sort of tribal formations that, share, that, that also laid, laid claim to turf and to its resources and later moved to extraterritorial economic operations. Would you go so far as to say that in the absence of state and particularly the state's monopoly of violence and able to enforce law, that gangs became the, a quasi-state structure to fill in that gap in these situations of economic development and business development and the need for protection and extracting tribute? I think the, the fact that the state was weak definitely created opportunities for these gangs to flourish. Now, I I do not think that the gangs were a substitute for the state. I think that they were essentially predatory groups that exploited the lack of protection, the lack of effective law enforcement, and they did sometimes provide services to their businessmen, to their firms. But these services, you know, like, for example, mediation and conflict or provision on, of loans or they would get some intelligence on the operation of their competitors. These services, you know, they were not real services, but rather, I would say, these were relationships of power because, because they... You know, people who they gave these services, they had absolutely no say over how these services would be delivered. The gangs could withdraw the services, appropriate the business, you know, or kill their clients. So I wouldn't go as far as to say that they, they were a substitute for the state. Talk about some of the internal dynamics to these uh, to the Russian gang as a social organization. And here, I mean, you know, the, the levels of hierarchies, the the code that that structures them and guides them, and the different class configurations you find in in Russian gangs in this period. Uh, what was it like to be in a gang? Well, yes, the gangs started as street organizations, and quite typical street organizations. We find similar gangs in other areas of the world where this is a youth gang that has cohort structure when uh, young men, as, as they grow older, move automatically to, to a higher cohort and then uh, to the positions of the leadership. The gangs had their own common fund, into which its members transferred about 10% of their incomes. And they had, had an elaborate set of rituals, a moral code, and so on. But as the gang developed its economic operations, the leadership 
moved away from its territorial roots and while being still seen as part of the same structure, they actually moved to more serious organized crime operations. So the gang became quite a complex structure with street with its street operations and extraterritorial operations. But still this whole structure was seen as one extended clan. And for the lads on the streets, the the leaders who by then could have lived in Moscow or even abroad were still uh, head of these extended clans. They were seen as patriarchs who commanded authority, who were seen as sort of patriarchal leaders who, who were looking after the members of the gang and everybody aspired at some point to, to become like them. So they basically branched out and became more organized and hierarchical over time. And and you, you mentioned earlier about uh, the relationship between these gangs and these violent structures, the relationship between gangs, violence, and capitalist development in Russia. Why don't you talk a bit about that relationship as well? I mean, you already mentioned the fact that gangs are taking tribute for an exchange for protection over businesses. But it seems you're also making a larger argument about how capitalism develops in the Russian context. Yes, I think that in a sense, the uh, the uh, Soviet socialist state collapsed and in, in a situation of weak uh, law enforcement, the country became to a large extent divided into these tribal groups and primitive networks, which were fighting for access to resources. And success depended very much upon the access to a trust network and the availability of violent resource so that people could protect their access to sources of rent and also connections with the state authorities. And I think in this respect, the street gang was not so much different from the networks which were established by the so-called Siloviki, members of the state security services and various military units, and to an extent the networks formed by the Russian oligarchs. Again, if, if we look at the accounts of how the oligarchs became what they are now, they all had a close networks of associates whom they trusted. They used violence quite effectively to protect their sources of revenue and they developed good connections uh, to the state. So, so in a sense, I think the gang is a sort of monstrous double <laughs> of many other uh, similar formations at the time. I see. So it's just the gang is one kind of manifestation of the general phenomenon of network connections and the importance of clan structures and developing in the development in post-Soviet Russia. That's right. One of the things you point out is that contrary to gangs and other societies, you argue that gangs were quite intertwined with mainstream society. I mean, we tend to think of gangs kind of on the margins of society. What kind of people became gang members in Kazan? And in what ways did they leave lives that where the divisions between legality and illegality were blurred? People who joined the gangs in the 1990s came from all kinds of backgrounds because displacement affected not just the working class young people but people from 
middle class backgrounds, from the families of intelligentsia. And in my interviews, you know, there were accounts of how people from families who were very well established in the Soviet Union, they became gang members. So they did come from a wide variety of backgrounds. Now, as time went by and new opportunities emerged in Russia, particularly uh, particularly in the 2000s, when the state became much stronger, when the formal economy picked up, people started to move away from their gang affiliations, but not necessarily completely. So I found that gang members could either, well, some of them could leave the gang, some of them stayed in the gang, but more or less nominally, and uh, developed careers in the state sector or in in private business. Others were still quite immersed in the gang, but would study in a university and also will, uh, would look for, for official careers, maybe at the, uh, in a construction site or in a factory or, again, private business. So people explored all kinds of opportunities. And what was interesting was that they didn't think that these opportunities were necessarily mutually exclusive. They thought that their contacts in the gang or in the gang itself, on the streets, but also if they stayed in the gang, then then potential conflicts, contacts with the gang leadership would be useful. If they wanted to start their own business, they could use them for security of their business or to to find inroads into the public administration and so on. So so there wasn't a a Buddha, a clear Buddha between their gang affiliations and aspirations and and their more mainstream aspirations. Now, there's been several studies uh, that look at the role, the influence of, of criminal culture uh, on Russian society. Um, you know, here I'm thinking of the the influence of the gulag prisoner and gulag culture in, in the 1960s, late 50s and 60s in Russia. What place does gang culture have in wider Russian society today? Mass culture and public discourse in Russia are still permeated by cultural reference to the gangs of the 1990s. And if you look at, uh, you know, the, the progress on the Russian TV, there are still many series about the bandits or ex-bandits. There was a very popular program physical education teacher uh, on Russian TV recently, which was about an ex-bandit who fell on hard times and became a teacher in a school. And he was seen as a kind of embodiment of vigorous masculinity and a person who earned a lot of respect for his sense of justice and uh, his uh, sort of direct man and so on. So in a sense, this kind of gang masculinity is still seen as uh, as being important for the construction of uh, the dominant masculinity in Russia. And what's also very interesting is that when commentators describe current political developments in Russia, they often make reference to the lads, the Patsani, the, the gang members. But they're not talking about the gangs as such, but they talk about the Russian authorities who are 
seen themselves as behaving according to the same rules, particularly when it comes to the neglect of formal law, unconditional loyalty to the members of their own power clan, reliance on the use of force. All these behaviors are seen as gang-like. So the gang, in a sense, is quite still quite central to the debates about the Russian power system. Yeah, and th- this leads into my my final question is that, and that is, you know, some critics characterize present day Russia as a mafia state, and meaning that the Putin system emerged out of these criminal ties in the 1990s and currently governs itself like a mafia organization. Uh, what do you think of this analysis? And what are the insights and limits of such a characterization? I think there are some insights here because this kind of characterization does reflect a sense that public institutions in Russia are run for the benefit of power holders. But at the same time, it's a bit simplistic because it sort of assumes that the power networks are subordinated to a single clan of Siloviki or members of Putin's direct environment, his social circle. In actual fact, the power networks in Russia are quite segmented and they use a variety of formal as well as informal modes of governance. So basically, I would say that the uh, pe- people who are in power in Russia, they use whatever works. If formal methods such as the use of courts, the use of formal law, work, then they use them. If informal methods such as intimidation, sometimes violent intimidation by agents of the state or by criminals affiliated to the state power networks work, then they use those methods. So I wouldn't say that there is this single mafia clan that rules Russia, but rather a multiplicity of different public-private clans. That was Svetlana Stevenson, a reader in sociology at London Metropolitan University and the author of Gangs of Russia, From the Streets to the Corridors of Power. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge.
what's up? Tell them where you're from. Straight out of Compton. A brother with his finger on the trigger. But once I take out my rep, gets bigger. I'm the root.